<laughs> Join me in Matthew um, uh, 19 and 20. I want to thank John Walker for uh, uh, sharing last Wednesday. I greatly appreciate that uh, and uh, want to continue with this. Um, as of tonight, we're 75% through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and I think it's very, very clear uh, that Matthew does have a missionary purpose and intention uh, in uh, this gospel. Uh, we've got good news. Uh, this coming Sunday, we will begin to pilot the Spanish translation of messages in the service. Uh, we believe, uh, hopefully, the monitor will be uh, installed this, um, uh, this, uh, this week, and uh, you will see uh, the messages translated into uh, Spanish. They'll uh, be English, and then uh, underneath, like closed captioning, they'll be Spanish. The challenge is, with the Spanish, um, it's hard to get punctuation in a live speaking uh, situation, but you won't know because you don't read it. But uh, anyway, we hope to uh, launch all of this um, uh, in earnest the first Sunday in April, uh, along with the Spanish language Sunday school class. And uh, we hope they'll incubate for a couple of weeks and have a great Easter Sunday. So if you'll pray that God would pour out his spirit on that, we would greatly appreciate that. I do believe that when you get serious about cross-cultural uh, missions, cross-cultural evangelism, satanic activity picks up. And if you will pray through that, that would be a great help to us. Uh, I do expect uh, in our congregation a high degree of support uh, for this, although it probably won't be perfect. I'm, I'm not naive. I do remember the second Spanish language ministry <clears throat> was able to help establish in my second pastorate uh, we had some difficulties. My first pastorate, we laid the groundwork for an international Baptist church that started right after I left uh, First King Street. And then uh, at Middlesex, we had a Sunday school ministry uh, that grew to 25 uh, real quickly, and we baptized in a year at least four uh, out of that ministry. Uh, I do remember the Sunday when our congregation on Sunday morning elected uh, the Sunday school teachers for those. It happened to be two seminary couples. Uh, one that had just gotten off the mission field from Puerto Rico and had very good Spanish language skills. And another couple, uh, he was from uh, uh, Westminster, South Carolina, went to Clemson and got a degree in Spanish. Now, I didn't know Clemson did English, much less Spanish, but uh, they did. And uh, yeah, just get it in there, twist it. Uh, but uh, anyway, he, uh, he did very well with the languages. He went to Kazakhstan. And uh, he uh, was a journeyman there for the International Mission Board and uh, taught English while there and met a Kazakh young lady and married her. Uh, she had just come to the Lord uh, as a result of the witness of Korean Baptist missionaries. And um, uh, the interesting thing is this was in the early 90s and my church in Fort Worth when I was a student there uh, was assigned the Kazakhs to pray for them. And so I prayed for them in 89 and got to pastor one in 94. And uh, was very grateful for that. Well, anyway, one Sunday morning, we elected these two to teach a Spanish language Sunday school class. And I got probably the nastiest phone call I've ever gotten in my life that evening uh, from a sweet lady in our congregation. She, she herself wasn't uh, nasty or awful, uh, but she told me that um, uh, five families were going to leave the church if we let the Mexicans in to the congregation. And... Um, uh, I said, Constance, I sure am sorry you had to tell me that, and, and I appreciate you telling me that. I know you don't feel that way. She said, I don't, but I, I did feel like I needed to let you know. And um, <clears throat> uh, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll talk to the deacons about it. But my, my backbone's pretty firm, and 
Um, if I get threatened that way, I kind of get a little stubborn. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we're, we're going to do it, and you just need to communicate that to them. But I'm also going to go tattle on them and tell the deacons about them. She didn't tell me who the families were, but wasn't too hard to pick out. And so I went and told the deacons, and I didn't exercise intentionally, on purpose, I didn't exercise a lot of leadership in that meeting. I just informed them about the phone call. And um, they, they had uh, one of the rare cases of righteous indignation I've ever seen. And they made a commitment to step up financially if it hurt us. And uh, they um, essentially said, don't let the Great Commission hit you on the way out. Uh, we're going to do it, and we're going to stand. And um, they, they promised that if there was a battle and a fight, uh, they'd be on the front lines with it. And, um, well, as it turned out, the five families stayed, and we never heard another word. And I learned a lesson about leadership in there. And that is, if you wilt, people will run over you. But if, gently, you stand uh, for what's right, God will bless you. And oftentimes, that ends up providing leadership. So I do expect here that uh, we'll have almost unanimous support for it. But I'm not naive. And so if uh, anything breaks loose, um, you know, which I don't really expect anything to, our, our folks are not divisive people. Uh, but if there's whining and complaining about the monitor being there and being a distraction, it will be a distraction for a couple of weeks um, until we get accustomed to it. And, um, you know, I'm, you just kind of watch for these things. Please do not underestimate what I say, though, that when you start reaching people cross-culturally, um, the, the forces of hell don't appreciate it, and sometimes they can create some difficulty. Well, that factors into what we're talking about tonight and several outreach opportunities as well. March 26, invite your one. How many of you all have prayed about this? How many of you all have invited someone? Good, good, thank you. Keep up the good work, I appreciate that. You've still got um, uh, 10 days or so before we uh, have this and um, 11 days or so, and so you've still got time if you've not invited anyone. Let that get on your heart. Uh, God loves the people that you know and the people that you'll have the opportunity to invite. Uh, then, April 7th of the night, we've got a disciple now. Mike Durrell will speak to students on um, Saturday, and Ricky Shillette will speak to parents on Saturday and preach to the church on Sunday. He will be preaching a message on transgenderism, and uh, it will be appropriate for students and older. And um, uh, Now, on that Sunday, are we all elementary school kids? Are they going to be in children's worship? Okay, all right. And uh, we, we want you to know that we want to stay sensitive about that. In fact, I'm preaching Matthew 19, 1 through 15, Sunday morning, about marriage, divorce, singleness, and children. And um, there might be, you might want to read through that text. And I'll send an email to this effect tomorrow. But you might want to read that text. That could be a bit painful for children to hear. And if you think so, we'll make arrangements uh, for your children to uh, miss the message Sunday. And maybe you explain it to them later, okay? And that's per, I, I understand that I'm sympathetic towards it. We've got our Harvest Crusade, the 23rd to the 26th of April. Uh, May 7th, we've got uh, mission trip and VBS training. And uh, we want everyone involved in the mission trip to be there, everyone involved in VBS training as well. And then uh, it should read June 4th to the 11th, VBS. We're going to do that in the evening because many of our folks that are going on the mission trip uh, can't take off two weeks of work for VBS in the morning and then the mission trip. Uh, as well. So we're going to be doing it in the evening and going to work with that. There's dinner at 5.30 for workers and their kids, and then VBS from 6 to 8.30. Well, with this, uh, I want us to look at the text this evening. The agents of mission is the first uh, missions, the first subject here in verses 1 through 15. And in an intensely missionary document, isn't it interesting that Jesus addresses the family? 
And Matthew records interaction uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees over the question of marriage, divorce, and Jesus expounds or elaborates with singleness and then children. This is my text Sunday, so I don't want to um, unload all my thunder this evening, but uh, the, the passage is not apocalyptic literature. If you struggle to understand apocalyptic literature like Daniel or Revelation, I can understand that, I sympathize. This is not, this is not that. This is real clear and straightforward, and there's no bending or yielding in this. Uh, now, in verse number, uh, verse number uh, 9, uh, there is uh, an exception clause here. But this is very, very clear. It, it's not like reading Revelation or Daniel. Um, it's, it's like reading the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees came to him in verse number 3 and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, the school of Hillel would have said yes. That was a rabbinic school in Jerusalem. I think the Apostle Paul went there. And uh, Gamaliel uh, was his teacher and instructor there. Paul got saved, and he tightened up his views to match the other school. And that was the school of Shimei. And there they were very tight and said there's no divorce unless there is uh, sexual unfaithfulness in the relationship. And that is the stance that Jesus actually takes here in the text. Um, so they ask, is... Uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and answers the question. That is why faith in Genesis 1 and 2 is so important to the Christian faith. And I don't ever want you to be intimidated uh, by anyone who um, uh, has doubts about Genesis 1 and 2. Do not feel like you are stupid or that you are unintelligent if you stand on Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, I'd say you're in good company because Jesus did. Jesus did. And so Jesus uh, goes uh, and states in verse 4, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning? Now when you think about the word beginning, what do you immediately think of? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Uh, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 1.26-28. And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. So then they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he did in Deuteronomy 24. Well, he did that in, because um, some, even back in Deuteronomy 24, were following the school of Hillel even back then, before it existed, just without justification, putting away their wives. The school of Hillel and some others said that um, if your wife spoils your food, you can divorce her. If you find a more attractive woman, you can divorce her. If uh, she says something that is um, disrespectful to you about your parents in front of you, my goodness, how many marriages will end over that? You can divorce her over that. And so that's what that was for. And so if there was an unjust cause of divorce where a man would divorce his wife, she was to get a certificate of divorce to justify her and basically implied the husband was knuckleheaded and that she did not engage in any kind of untoward or immoral behavior. It was protection from her. And some speculate that this is why the Samaritan woman had had five husbands. And the one she was with now was not her husband. So there may have been a certificate of divorce exchange there with the Samaritan uh, woman. Uh, Jesus answers um, and, and really pins the ears of the school of Hillel to the wall. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. 
But from the beginning, it was not so. So there's terrible mistreatment there. And um, uh, the Lord permitted that. Uh, Jesus goes on to verse 9 and say, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who's divorced commits adultery. Um, I, have, I, I really worried about this passage before I became a pastor because I thought, my goodness, this is so tight, this is strong, this is straight, there's no bending on this. And then I got to be a pastor, and in my first... Um, five years of the pastor, and I discovered that almost all Christian divorces involved that in verse number nine. Either there's been an abandonment, a non-Christian spouse has left a Christian, or one of the partners has, has done that. Now, oftentimes it happens and they don't realize it. They divorce, and then one of them remarries, which violates verse nine, and so the other person is set free. But I, I, I don't know, you know, there, there's a lot of complaining when preaching and teaching about marriage and divorce in the church about Christians divorcing over irreconcilable differences. Well, sometimes that, they do that because they don't want to announce in court what actually happened. But quite frankly, the vast majority of the time, it involves verse number nine. And in my view, most of the, most of the divorces I've known, I've never known a Christian divorce over irreconcilable differences. It's almost always been because of verse nine or abandonment. Uh, sometimes there's been some severe mistreatment, uh, which I think would probably relate back to verse eight. So his disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So Jesus talks about marriage and divorce here. He goes back to the creation account um, of Scripture, not to the culture. And so he has this cultural issue in Israel, and he goes back to the Word of God and applies the Scripture to the culture. And it's just remarkable how often the book of Genesis appears in the missionary literature to help missionaries deal with some of the issues that they face on the field. And this happens to be one of them. Uh, so the disciples cry out in verse number 10, well, then it's better not to marry. Jesus said, now hold on just a minute. Uh, verse 11, all cannot accept this saying, but only to those to whom it's been given. There's got to be special grace. And I think a grace gift, a spiritual gift, uh, is what Jesus is going to outline here in verse 12. And he uses the image of a eunuch. Um, and I want to be delicate here, but he says there are three causes of that. And one of those uh, is, is rather interesting. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There's some kind of physical deformity when they're born, and, and so they, they are essentially eunuchs. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, oftentimes guards of harems. And then there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Uh, Paul will elaborate on this in 1 Corinthians 7 in the context of missionary outreach. And he'll say, um, if you can remain single and God gives you that particular gift to be single, and if you can accept that, then be single for the sake of the kingdom of God. And immediately, who do you think about in Southern Baptist history? I think about two missionaries immediately from the 19th and 20th century, Lottie Moon and Bill Wallace of China. Uh, both of them uh, happened to remain single in order to serve God as missionaries uh, on, the, um, on the field. I think Bertha Smith did too, didn't she? Yeah, I think Bertha Smith was single her entire life as well. And boy, remarkable, remarkable uh, Christian woman. Um, now, he says at the end of verse 12 about singleness, he who's able to accept it, let him accept it. Well, if you can't accept being single, then don't, all right? But if you can, do it for the sake of the kingdom. And again, Paul elaborates on that in, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Then he goes on from verse 13 to 15, and he talks about the little children. And it does not surprise me one bit that in the context of marriage and divorce, he ends up bringing up the kids. 
bring up the kids. And um, uh, I, I think that that um, obviously is a ra- rather wise thing to do. So the agents of missions have got to have solid Christian homes, and when they do, I think they're better forces for the cause, the missionary cause of Christ. Then there's the message of missions. And this occupies the larger part of Matthew 19 and 20. It's a message that produces humility, and uh, this uh, uh, unveils Jesus' example of evangelism. In verse 16 through verse 24, he meets the rich young ruler, which I've told you before, I suspect may have possibly been uh, Saul, who became the apostle Paul. Not really sure, but uh, in mere speculation. But what Jesus does here is that he ends up producing humility. The young man comes to him and says, Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, said, Jesus begins to interrogate him. I think Jesus probably sensed uh, the young man was very naive. He was overeager. He um, was a little too confident in himself. And so Jesus begins to puncture his self-confidence with theological questions and questions about the law. He says, well, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Now, Jesus didn't deny that he was God, but he stated the truth. No one is as good as the word you use, good, except for God. So why are you calling me good? Well, he's trying to pull out of him a confession of his deity, which the young man has not come to. And if this is the Saul who would become Paul, he really had a big struggle with that. Okay? And so he asked them that. Then he says, well, go, go keep all the commandments. And the young man says, well, which ones? And he goes to the second table of the Ten Commandments and skips the first. The second table of the Ten Commandments are horizontal relationships. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no coveting. Uh, honor your father and mother. Okay? The first table is what? Relates not horizontally, but vertically to God. And he skips that. Okay? Again, he would have noticed that. It would have caught his attention. He would have been thinking in the back of his mind, whoa, he didn't start with the first table. He started with the second table. So he rattles it off and says, well, I've kept these from my youth up. What do I lack? And Jesus tells him. Jesus tells him. He says in verse number 21, if you want to be perfect, see, if you go by the Ten Commandments, you've got to be perfect with them. If you want to be perfect, then you better do something to make it clear that you have repented from your violation of the first and second commandment. That, that's, it's not in there, but that's the Mill's understanding of it, okay? If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me, which is what he told everyone else. Now, a couple of things here. Jesus is not teaching works righteousness. What he's doing, though, is that he's got to break his heart and snatch it away from the God of his possessions. Because you see, that's really the problem. He really exposes himself. Jesus exposes his sinfulness. And the young man in verse 22 heard that saying, and when he did, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Uh, So the first thing is Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. The second thing, this is the only time Jesus ever said, go sell what you have and give to the poor. He didn't tell other wealthy people that. He didn't tell Nicodemus that. Nicodemus volunteered to give a portion of what he had. Second, he didn't tell Nicodemus uh, that or Zacchaeus, either one, both of them wealthy. So he didn't tell all wealthy people to go sell what they had and give to the poor. Um, The the third thing happens to be um, Jesus did not chase the young man down to renegotiate the terms. He wasn't about to do that. He, He elevated the saving gospel and, and the kind of heart that you've got to have to come to Christ, and he left it there, and he let the young man walk away. 
uh, he, he did not compromise uh, the gospel. So that is a message that is to produce humility. God will never save an arrogant person. God will never save a self-righteous person. If someone is arrogant before God, if someone is full of their own righteousness and will not let it go, God will not save them. If they will humble themselves and become a formally arrogant person, if, um, if they will realize their sinfulness before God and let go of their self-righteousness, yes, but God will never save a self-righteous or arrogant person. And Jesus used the law to make that very, very clear. Uh, the next item is a message that proffers hope. Verses, um, well, Jesus continues on through verse 24 uh, with this uh, message of humility. And, and he says in verse 23, Assuredly, I say to you, that's the New Testament, New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some have um, speculated that there were um, essentially uh, low-lying passageways in walls of walled cities like Jerusalem where folks could climb in, climb under, and other livestock could climb through and get into the city, and that camels were not able to bend down that low and pass through that, and that they would call these little passageways eyes of the needle. There's no evidence for that. That's not true. We, we, it, well, if it is, we don't have any evidence for it. Jesus is actually talking about a sewing needle and taking a floppy, loppy camel and trying to shove it through the eye of a needle. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine taking this camel, much bigger than us, I mean, the thing's ugly anyway, and trying to shove, I mean, start with his lips. And if you close his mouth, you won't see his teeth. And you try to shove him through the eye of a needle. He's saying... That's how difficult it is for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of God. So if you know someone who's wealthy, you knows Jesus, which compared to the world population is just about all Baptist church members, what you've seen is a miracle. And our congregation, compared to the world income and the average income of most people in the world, what you see is that you've seen hundreds of camels go through the eyes of needles. So don't get too discouraged by this. But because of the spirit, oftentimes the spirit and arrogance that accompanies it, it can be very, very difficult uh, for some with great wealth to come to Christ. It's happened a lot, but thank God, uh, thank God for it. Well, the disciples respond in verse number 25. With, uh, they say, uh, well, who then can be saved? Well, they had the notion that if you had a lot of wealth, you were righteous before God. Uh, and that was a uh, typical Jewish uh, thought. And it, it underscored just about everything and all their understanding of things in the culture. Who then can be saved? I mean, if, 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 if they're not saved, what about the rest of us? Well, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, uh, well, in, I read the wrong verse. Verse 26, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said, well, see, we left and followed, we left all and followed you. We left our small businesses. Therefore, what do we have? And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, another word for the coming kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, now He talked about the disciples in verse 28, now He's talking about everyone who has followed Him. 
Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Uh, To paraphrase, Jesus said, In the new kingdom, I will make it so that you rule and receive rewards multiplied a hundred times more than your sacrifice. Now in this world, it's not the evangelistic, it's not the missionary that are being praised and have first consideration in the power structures and the centers of power in our world. But in this kingdom they do. And Jesus ends up saying then, but many who are first will be last. And the last, the evangelistic, the missionary, will be first. So it's a message that proffers some hope and reward. But then it's a message that proposes grace. And this is Jesus' parable of grace. And some have a hard time getting their mind around it. They don't know quite what to make of it. But remember, it's a story taken from common life. And um, let me just read the parable as it is. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he's out early. Uh, He needs some laborers to, to work in the field. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, which was typical pay for a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out at about the third hour, about nine o'clock in the morning, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth at noon and the ninth hour, three o'clock uh, at, that, at that time, and he found, uh, he did likewise. And at about the eleventh hour, one hour from closing time, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, well, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, well, because no one hired us. And then he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, the manager of the place, call the laborers and give them their wages. Now watch this. Beginning with the last 11th hour workers, to the first, those there since 6 a.m. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received a denarius. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner. Well, these last men have worked only an hour, and you made them equal to us who've borne the heat of the day. Um, I think what Matthew's trying to communicate here, Jesus is, is that they're complaining, Jews, that God has made the Gentiles equal in inheritance to the Jews, those who've come in the 11th hour. Now, this is a remarkable thing. Some people wonder, is, is that very just? Well, yeah, that's what he agreed to, and they got what they worked for. But what you, where you need to position yourself in this parable is in the 11th hour, not 6 a.m. in the morning. We are all 11th hour workers. And when we show up before God, what he gives us is not what we have worked for and labored. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. That's how God comes through. And that's what he's willing to do with the entire world. And his grace is enough for anyone that needs him. So Jesus is telling a parable here of remarkable remarkable grace and and so the thing here is is that the reward here the grace is out of proportion it's not proportionate at all 
It is for the 6 a.m. workers. They, they get what they've earned, but there are none of us that are 6 a.m. workers. The 11th hour workers, however, what they receive is out of proportion to their labors. And the grace and the help and the strength and the mercy that God so eagerly wants to give is far out of proportion to anything that we have done. I don't know about you, but I've come to the conclusion that any day I'm not, I haven't busted hell wide open is a pretty good day. And then on top of that, I get so much more. So that's the message. Then there's the mark of missions. And Jesus actually uses the word baptism here and describes his cross in terms of baptism. And there are a couple of things that are marks here in this text. For Jesus, he's marked with sacrifice. Now look at the words he piles, one on top of the other in verses 17 through 19. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside again on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and mock and scourge and crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Now, this begins some instruction about sacrifice and service. In fact, this is something of a bookend, verses 17 through 19. The passage ends in verse 28 with another bookend. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the bookends of this text are the death of Christ. Jesus is trying to say something here. How we are marked, what marks us in missions. uh, He is marked with this sacrificial death, and that bookends this entire passage. Now, look what comes up next. Uh, James and John's mama shows up. Comes to Jesus, and he says, what do you wish? In verse 21, she says, well, when the kingdom comes, would you give one of my sons a throne on the right-hand side and another son a throne on the left-hand side? Well, that's kind of what we want for all of our children, isn't it? Uh, So let's not be too hard on her. But Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? The cup is an Old Testament image of drinking down judgment. Uh, baptism, he, uh, he's referring here to his death. So at the cross, he'll be judged. And James and John said, well, we're able. So he said to them, you'll indeed drink my cup and be baptized with my baptism. But to sit on my right hand, my left hand, is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. In other words, Jesus is saying here, I'm not here giving out crowns right yet. One day I will. I'm not distributing crowns. I'm distributing crosses. And that's what you're going to have. And that defines the Christian life. If the Christian life isn't always comfortable for you, and if you feel like sometimes God has nailed you to a cross, that's the way it's supposed to be. You and I are to reenact the cross, take up our cross daily. We die daily. And we feel that way because that's how God has arranged the Christian life so that before our family, friends, neighbors, and our world, we are actually living crucifixions to tell the world of Jesus' death. And God reenacts that in our lives. That's why it's difficult. That's why there's so much suffering in the body of Christ. For one reason, there are lots of explanations, but that's, that's one. So Jesus calls them to himself in verse 25, and he clarifies some things. He said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. If he wants to be up, he's got to go down. Whoever desires to be first, even higher up, let him be your slave, lower down. And then the other book in. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for uh, many. Worldly leadership is based upon rank, authority, sometimes name, sometimes education, other qualifications. And some of those things are, are appropriate in some places. However, in the kingdom of God, it's based upon the eagerness to serve and to abandon one's life for the sake of other people. Then there's the extent of missions in verses 29 through, through uh, 34. Let's read that. Uh, he begins with uh, the crowds in verse 29 and then moves to individuals beginning in verse 30. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out. They were terribly annoying to the crowd. Crying out, Have mercy on us, O Lord! Son of David. That's not an incidental confession, by the way. O Lord, the God of the Old Testament, that's who you are, Son of David, the rightful claimant to the throne of all of Israel in the world. So Jesus stood still, well, in verse 31, then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. Now, how would you like to be blind and you can't see who's talking to you, but you can hear it's a multitude and they say, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. You can't see. And, and of course, they, they cooperate, don't they? Oh, no, they don't cooperate at all. They cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. They confess him twice. Now, I don't, don't know what kind of social and theological eruption there was in the crowd over this, but they didn't give a rip. They called out and cried out for Jesus. And so look how Jesus responds in verse 32. He ends up joining these blind individuals. He's contrary to the crowd. So Jesus stood still. Now the crowd's following, so he stops. I, I can't help but think of that scene in Forrest Gump when he's running across America back and forth. And all of a sudden he gets tired and wants to go home. And he's running out in the middle of nowhere and stops. And this crowd behind him stops. Because they're all intent watching him. Well, that's what Jesus did. Jesus carried a crowd. And when he stopped, they stopped. Something emphatic is about to happen here. So Jesus stood still and called them. The crowd resisted them. Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Jesus is adequate for every trouble in life. Every one of them. He's adequate. Uh, in fact, there is no one that you will meet today or the next day or any day of the rest of your life that Jesus can't save and change. Not a single one of them. And there's not a person anywhere on the earth who would be better off as a non-Christian. Not one. Not one at all. So I think this gives great, great impetus to do all we can to reach out, to love people, to pray with a whole heart that God would save them and to give them the good news of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your word. And, oh, God, how we bless you. Thank you for giving us such great words about our Lord. I'm constantly amazed. And, God, I'm just so grateful I get to do this all the time. 
Thank you that he is able and he's adequate for every exigency of human life. And then there's eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.